Well, as we get started this morning, we're just going to jump right into the text of the scriptures where we're at today. If you have a Bible, we are in Esther and we're in chapter 8. Esther chapter 8 begins at verse 1 in this way. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. So the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed Mordecai over the house of Haman. I'm pretty sure that we all would agree. We love when everything comes together and it is settled and resolved. There is a great anxiety when things are up in the air. And there is a total release of that anxiety when a resolution comes to pass. And when the resolution is unclear, we are just filled with kind of a kind of an edge of our seat situation. This is one of the reasons that we have kind of a love-hate relationship with sports. What is it that makes sports so interesting and exciting? It is this kind of tension. It is that excitement that puts us on the edge of our seats as we're waiting for the conclusion to come in the midst of the game that we're watching or the event that we're watching. And, and as we are in the midst of the event, we have this, this unclear resolution about what's going to come to pass. And so there is an anxiety, there's a stress. And those games that come down to the last minute, down to the wire, the ones where it is so close, right to the very end are the ones that we both love to watch and those things completely put us in knots. And there's hardly anything better than kind of the, the sudden death overtime of a game and the uncertainty of what is going to happen in the midst of this event that you're watching. This is also why sporting events are inherently live events. There's almost no point to watching a recorded sporting event. This is why, you know, sometimes when we have a sporting event that's going on at the same time that church is going on and maybe a person has it being recorded at home and they don't want anybody to tell them what is happening or what happened in the event. And if anyone spoils it in any way, it's, it's pretty much pointless to watch it because they are inherently live events. We love climactic resolutions, or maybe I should say that most of us do. Most of us love the suspense, not my wife, not at all. It's nearly impossible for my wife to watch any movie that has even a hint of suspense, even if it's like a love story. If the, and you know, every single love story, you know, all the Hallmark movies, they're all the same. And you know, there's going to come a point, you know, what do they call it, like right before the third act where everything falls apart and it seems like, you know, he's not gonna get the girl or she's not gonna get the guy. And that, that suspense that's built in, that's the very thing that makes us watch these movies. But my wife cannot stand any sort of suspense in a movie. She feels compelled to have to take out her phone and look up the plot line online before the end of the movie so that she can know what's going to happen because she just can't handle the suspense. She hates the anxiety of it. And routinely, I have to try and stop her from looking up the plot line of a movie as we're watching a movie together. But she wants to know that everything is going to work out in the end. So. Maybe we don't all like suspenseful climactic resolutions, but we do like a, a resolve. We like a resolution. We like when things come together and the suspense is done and we're able to see things come to conclusion. And Esther chapter seven, beginning at verse six through chapter eight, verse two, this is a great 
resolution. The evil Haman, as he is called in this passage of scripture, he is exposed for who he truly is. And then not only is he exposed for who he truly is, but then he is hanged for his wicked schemes on the very gallows that he had built to hang Mordecai. Everything comes to this perfect resolution. Is there anything more glorious than true and complete and quick justice like in this situation? We, we absolutely love justice. Now, some of you Bible junkies, you hear me say we love justice and you think, well, isn't that in the Bible? I hate to break it to you, that's not in the Bible. The Bible doesn't say that we uh, are to love justice. It says that we're to do justly and to love mercy and to walk in humility. But that's a message for another day, not for what we're looking at today. We do, however, innately love justice. We love when things are resolved and everything is right again. This is why pretty much all of our movies end with the good guys winning. Unless it's one of those to-be-continued inevitable endings. Then you know that, well, it's going to stop and it seems like everything is completely lost and the bad guy has won and, and everything is in total disarray. And, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. You know what movie that I'm alluding to here. At the end of that one, as you're getting ready to go into the resolution of it, there's kind of like, how on earth are they going to fix this whole situation? But you can know, going into it, that they will. Captain America, he's going to save the day. Everything's going to be good. Iron Man, the whole deal. We know that they're going to come and fix it because our culture is built around these endings where the good guys win. We love that kind of story. Of course, in the real world, it doesn't always end that way. But in our idealized worlds, which we fictionalize in film, the good guys always win. And that's exactly what we have here in this great story of Esther. The same day King Ahasuerus gave Queen Esther the house of Ammon. What same day? The same day that Haman was found out for his wickedness and his evil plans and Haman was hanged. And that same day Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther, awarded to her the house, the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews and Mordecai. This is Queen Esther's cousin, who to this point has been hidden. It hasn't been known, the connection between Esther and Mordecai. But then Mordecai, he comes into the king's presence and Esther reveals the relationship that she has with Mordecai. And the king takes his signet ring that had been taken from Haman. Remember, he had given this to Haman early on because Haman was his number two. He's kind of like prime minister. And the signet ring was basically the signature of the king. And so now they've taken it from the wicked Haman and they give it to Mordecai. And Esther puts him in charge of Haman's estate and of all of the things that Haman was overseeing. So on the very same day that Haman is hanged on the gallows that he had set up to kill Mordecai, Haman's estate is awarded to Queen Esther. I don't think that you could come up with a better ending than that. This is the perfect ending to the suspense of this whole story. The perfect ending to the suspense of what we saw back there in the last words of chapter 3. Look back with me at Esther chapter 3, the very last words beginning there at verse 12. There we read, Then the king's scribes were called on the 13th day of the first month, 
and a decree was written according to all that Haman commanded the kings, or to the king's sartraps and to the governors who were over the province, to the officials of all the people, to every province according to the script, and to every people in their language. In the name of the king Ahasuerus, it was written and sealed with the king's signet ring. That's what Haman has there, the signature of the king. And when the letters were sent by the couriers into all the king's provinces to destroy to kill, to annihilate all of the Jews, both young and old, little children and women. And one day on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their possessions, a copy of the document was to be issued as law in every province being published for all people and that, they all should be, that they should all be ready for that day. The couriers went out, hastened by the king's command and the decree was proclaimed in Shushan, the citadel. So the king and Haman sat down to drink but the city of Shushan was perplexed. That right there is the height of the tension of this whole story. This wicked Haman, he's upset after he's been brought up to be second in command underneath the king. He's upset that one guy, Mordecai, won't bow before him. Everybody else will bow, but one guy, Mordecai, won't. And it's brought to his attention that this Mordecai is a part of this group of people, the Jewish people, and so Haman hatches this plan, this plot to annihilate not just Mordecai, but everybody that was from the same bloodline as Haman, and so as Mordecai. So that's what we've seen in that passage there. And you've got just the height of tension in Esther chapter three. But now we've got this perfect conclusion to the story. And it's not just the perfect conclusion to the story of that tension because of this decree from Haman there in Esther chapter three, but it's the perfect conclusion to the tension that's built in the final words of Esther chapter four, when Mordecai is speaking to Queen Esther, who he's the only one, as far as we can tell, who knows who Esther truly is and that she is Jewish and she's also gonna be destroyed by this decree from Haman. Mordecai's communicating back and forth with her through messengers and Mordecai at the end of Esther chapter four, there in verse 10 or verse 13, it says, and Mordecai told them to answer Esther, do not think in your heart that you will escape the king in the king's palace more than any other of the Jews. For if you remain completely silent, Esther, at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows? whether you have come to the kingdom for such a time as this. And then Esther returns word to Mordecai after she receives this word of faith from, from Mordecai. He says, listen, I trust that God will bring deliverance, even if it's not through your hand, Esther. And so Esther responds and she sends a, master a message back to Mordecai. And Esther told them to reply to Mordecai in verse 15, go and gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me, neither eat nor drink for three days or nights, night and day. My maids and I will fast likewise. And so I will go to the king, which is against the law. More tension in the story. I'm gonna do what is forbidden. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther had commanded him. So everything has built to this point. Queen Esther is now given Haman's estate after the tension of this decree from Haman to destroy her family, all of them, in all of the 127 provinces of Persia. And then the, the tension of the 
her going in to see the king and to ask for the king to save her and her people. And then the tension of the, the banquet and then the tension after the first banquet. And all this just keeps building to this point right here where now Esther has been given Haman's estate. Haman has been hanged on the gallows that he built for Mordecai. Mordecai is revealed to, to the king as being Esther's cousin. And he is elevated to Haman's position and appointed over Haman's house. And you would think that should, it should all just end right there. It seems like that should be the conclusion of the story and just move on from Esther to the very next book, but not so fast. Not so fast because the decree of chapter three to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all of the Jews, it still stands. The king's command in Persia 2,500 years ago was literally and figuratively written in stone. So. You know, it was probably carved into clay tablets with cuneiform and literally it's written in stone and figuratively it's like, well, it can't be overturned. The, the king has given this command. He's given this decree, this edict to kill all of the people of Mordecai's family, the Jewish people and all the 127 provinces on, what is it? The 13th day of the 12th month, every one of them are to be killed. So that decree still stands. Haman is dead, but his Evil plot and plan remain. The decree of the king still stood. And that's why my final point last week, if you were listening into our message last time, my, my final point is that God is at work. We see God working here in this passage, but there's still more for us to do. There's still more work to be done. Haman was out of the picture, but the lives of Esther and Mordecai and all of the Jews living in all of the provinces of Persia were still under the threat of Haman's horrible edict and his plan to destroy, kill, and annihilate all of the Jewish people. So there remains more work to be done. And so at this point, uh, I want to bring you back to an important point for us to remember as we're thinking through the text of Esther, and not just the text of Esther, but as we read through the scriptures as a whole from Genesis to Revelation, this is one of those important truths to remember. It is essential that we trust God. That's one of the things we see as we go through the scriptures. It's essential to trust God, but it is also necessary that we take responsibility because there's more work to be done. God is at work. God has been working through every single one of the things that was happening in this book, from the fall of Queen Vashti to the rise of Queen Esther to the ascent of Haman and his wicked plot to destroy the Jews and all these different things that have been going on. God is certainly at work. And it's essential that we trust that God is at work. But in the midst of all this, there are those moments where we still have work to do. It's necessary for us to take responsibility for the part that God has given to us. I am thoroughly convinced that God is sovereign. I believe that God works providentially, even if often covertly behind the scenes. We don't necessarily see him overtly working, but God is working providentially behind the scenes. But I am just as much convinced as I am that he is working behind the scenes, I am equally convinced that we have a part to play in all the work that is going on. And that actually brings me to one of my absolute favorite verses in all of the Bible. In fact, I would say my two favorite verses in all of the scriptures are found in Philippians chapter 2 at verses 12 and 13. There Paul says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. And here's the, here's the key. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. 
And then verse 13, for it is God who works in you to will and to do his good pleasure. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We've got a part to play. We've got work to do, but we can trust that God is working in us and in this world to bring about his good pleasure, his good plan. So Haman is dead, but the decree of Haman, it's still there. And let me just throw out there as an illusion of where we are going as we're thinking through the text of this book, the book of Esther. As we look at this, Haman seems to be destroyed, but his decree is still there. Remember that the devil, the one who's working behind the scenes, I made the point several weeks ago that even though God is not explicitly seen or you know, overtly seen in the pages of the book of Esther, we know that he's working behind the scenes, but we also know that the adversary, the one who opposes the working of God in the world, he's working against God's plans and purposes in this world. But the devil is defeated. Just as Haman was defeated at the end of Esther chapter seven, the devil is defeated, but his work continues. And so as a result, we still have some work to do. So look back with me at Esther chapter eight, pick it up again at verse three. Now Esther spoke again to the king and fell down at his feet and implored him with tears to counteract the evil of Haman the Agagite and the scheme which he had devised against the Jews. And the king held out the golden scepter toward Esther. So Esther arose and stood before the king and said, if it pleases the king, and if I have found favor in your sight, and the thing seems right to the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, which he wrote to annihilate the Jews who are in all of the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the evil that will come to my people? Or how can I endure to see the destruction of my countrymen? There is really a lot here. There's so much here to think about and so many good things in those verses, verses three through six for us to carry over for application for us. So I want to highlight, I think probably three things from these verses. First, the first thing that I think is important to highlight in verses three through six is that I think it's worth noting the way that Esther came before the king. I want to suggest that the posture of Esther's humble petition before the king is a picture of the humble posture that we ought to have in our prayers before our king, the king of kings, our father in heaven. So my first point a moment ago was that it is essential that we trust God, but it is also necessary that we take responsibility. So what does that actually look like in our day-to-day -day lives? What's it look like when we are coming before God in prayer? In our prayers, as we are trusting God, but we're also taking responsibility, in our prayers, we have bold access to our Father in heaven, but we should also reverently honor him as king. That means we are trusting God and the access that he has given to us, but it also means that we are being responsible in the way that we appear before him. Esther was the queen. The king was her husband. And yet she still approached him with humility. She still approached him with total reverence for the office, the, the throne that he was upon. Now, of course, this was because of the customs and the laws of Persia 2,500 years ago. But I still think that there's an important visual, an important picture here for 
you and I, as we are living in this world and we are trusting that God is working, but we're taking responsibility for the work that he has for us, that when we come before God, we have access because we have a relationship with him as our father. God, as he is revealed in the scriptures, is our father. We have access before him because of that relationship that we have with him as his kids, as his children. But he is also God and he is high and he is holy and he is king. The scriptures reveal that he is king of kings and Lord of lords. And so when I come before God, trusting in him and taking responsibility for the work and the job that he's called me to and what he calls you to, I come before him and I have access because he's my father, but I come before him in humility and I come before him with reverence and fear. Jesus in the New Testament and the Gospels, he taught his disciples to pray. pray. You can actually read the, the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6 and Luke chapter 11. And when Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, he says that you begin your prayer with our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And in Jesus's instruction for our prayers, we see that we have access to go directly to our Father. We don't need to go through a mediator, some intermediary. We go directly to our Father who is in heaven. But we also see that he's in heaven and he is holy and he is hallowed. So our access to God is clear. We can come boldly before the throne of grace to obtain mercy and grace in our time of need. But when we do, we should, just as Esther was queen and she's going to appear before her husband, the king, she comes in with humility. She comes in with reverence. So that's the first thing to consider in verses three through six. Second thing that we should see in this passage that I think is worth noting is that when Esther humbly petitioned the king, she came to him with a plan. She has a solution to the problem that is at hand. She came with a plan to subvert the plot of Haman. And I believe that God has given us brains and he wants us to use the brains that he has given to us wisely. Um, we see this worked out in a, another place in a similar story in the Old Testament, a story that happens near the same time as Esther and involves some of the same people as Esther in the story of Nehemiah. There in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah saw something happening that he desired to change in his day and in his world having to do with his people, the Jewish people. And he begins to pray about it. And as you read through Nehemiah chapter one, you see that he prays about it for an extended period of time. Several months, Nehemiah prays about this issue and this problem. And then after praying about it for several months, there came a moment in the story of Nehemiah and Nehemiah chapter two, where he's now given an opportunity to actually address the issue that he had been praying about. And, and I wanna read this passage to you in Nehemiah chapter two, verses one through eight, just so we can see the parallel to what is happening here with Esther and what it speaks to us. So Nehemiah chapter two, verse one, and it came to pass in the month of Nisan in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when he was before him, when Nehemiah was before him, that I took the wine and gave it to the king. Uh, Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king Artaxerxes. Now I had never been sad in the presence of the king before. Therefore the king said to me, why is your face sad since you're not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid and I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs lies in waste and the gates are burned with fire? And then the king said to me, what do you wanna do? What is your request? Note this, so I prayed to the God of heaven and 
I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my fathers, to the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. And then the king said to me, the queen also sitting beside him, how long will your journey be? And when will you return? And so it pleased the king to send me, and I set a time for him. Furthermore, I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river that they must permit me to pass through till I come to Judah and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel, which pertains to the temple and so forth. So what we see in this passage with Nehemiah is that Nehemiah sees a problem in his day. The city of Jerusalem was destroyed and they're having a hard time rebuilding the city. And so for months, he brings his problem to God in prayer. And he fasts about this and he prays about this. And then at a certain point, after months and months of praying about this, as he's the cupbearer of the king, he's in the presence of the king, the guy who had the power to deal with Nehemiah's problem, there he's given favor to bring his problem and his petition to the king. But he's also asked by the king, so what do you want to do? You see a problem, Nehemiah. But how do you want to fix this? How do you want to, what's the solution that you offer to deal with this problem? What's your request? And when Nehemiah was given the opportunity, what did he have ready? Nehemiah had a solution and a plan ready to address the problem. So this is really important. This is exactly what we see with Esther and Esther chapter eight. She comes before the king. There's still a major problem. The decree that Haman has established it's still in place. All of her people, we're going to see this is in the third month of the year, nine months from this point, all of her people are going to be destroyed by the decree of Haman. And so she comes before the king and she comes humbly and she comes in reverence and she says, got this really big problem. And the king says, all right, well, what do you want to do? She has a solution. She's been praying about it. She's been thinking about it. She has a solution to the problem. Nehemiah, same thing. He sees a problem. He sees something going on that needs to be addressed. And when the opportunity is given, the moment is given, he has a solution. The king says, what do you want? What's your request? He's already thought through it. He's already got a plan. He's got a solution to address the problem. And this is really important for you and for me as well. I think a lot of times we're really good at complaining. And if you are complaining to God in prayer, that's not a bad thing. You can bring your complaints to the Lord. But as you're bringing your complaints to the Lord, in prayer because of the problems that you see. May it be also that you're asking God for wisdom so that you can identify a solution. I, I'll tell you, one of the things that drives me absolutely nuts is when people come to me, whether it's people around the, the church, the organization that I lead, or maybe it's even my kids or someone else comes to me and they've got a problem and all they wanna do is complain about the problem. And I say, well, what do you wanna do about it? And they have no idea. So God's given us brains to use those wisely, to seek out counsel and to try to figure out how do we address this. So that brings us to this really important point. God is working providentially and he expects our participation in the work. Have you ever wondered, it seems to me that God could do these things in the world better than me if he wanted to. So why doesn't he do it? I mean, sometimes we look at all the problems in the world. We look at all the issues in the world and we wonder like, God, why don't you just come here and fix this whole situation? You, you could probably do it better than me. Well, I want to suggest to you that God does the things that only he can do. And he involves you and he involves me in the rest. It's very similar, I think, as when you moms or dads, when you do a 
project with your kids. You're, you're building something or you're baking something and you do the things that only you can do. You're the one that uses the, the skill saw or you're the one that is, you know, putting the stuff on the stove or putting it in the oven or whatever it is. You do the things that only you can do and then you have them do as much as they possibly can even if they make a mess along the way. So I have found as I look at my life, as I look at our world, as I look at the way that God works through his people and through his church that oftentimes God does the things that only God can do and he involves us to participate in the rest. So that's key thing. So those are the first two things we see in these verses. Third thing to note in this passage, Esther chapter eight, I actually turned away from it. Esther chapter eight, verses three through six. Third thing to note in this passage, and it's actually two things. So if you're taking notes, you can kind of do a little subheadings underneath the third thing. Esther says to the king, as she's bringing her petition to him, how can I endure to see the evil that will come on my people? Or how can I endure to see the destruction of my countrymen? And so the first thing to see in these words is that Esther isn't bringing a petition before the king merely to save herself. It is not a selfish request. She has already risked her life several times in this passage in the process of seeking to have the opportunity to bring this request to the king. And so her petition is for her people. It's not a selfish request. She says, how can I, how can I live and see this destruction of my people? So that's the first thing. It's a selfless request that she brings to the king. The second thing we see in this passage is that she has a huge passion for the salvation of her people. Would to God that I had and that you had a heart for your people like Esther did. This is the same heart, I think, that Paul the Apostle expresses in the New Testament book of Romans. Romans chapters 9 through 11, as, as he is thinking about his, his own people, the Jewish people, same people as Esther was looking to seek to save. In Romans chapter 9 through 11, Paul is sharing his passion for his own people. And he says this in Romans chapter 9, verse 1. I tell you the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren. He almost says like, I wish I could lose my own salvation so that I would see my countrymen come to salvation. I wish that I could be accursed from Christ for my brethren, the countrymen, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of law, the service of God, and the promises of whom are all the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all eternally blessed. Amen. Th those are heavy words. And it's not just there in Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. It's also in the next chapter in Romans chapter 10, verse 1. Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. Years ago, I read a biography on the great American evangelist D.L. Moody, and it was called A Passion for Souls. And, and that was one of the things you learned about D.L. Moody. He had a true and genuine passion to see people come to salvation. And that's what we need at this moment, a passion for souls, for the souls of the lost that they would be saved. Would to God that he would build in the hearts of his people an increasing passion to see people come to salvation. God is in the work of saving souls from evil and destruction, and he desires you to join him in that work. And here's the crazy thing. It won't get done 
without you. Now, I know that there are plenty of people within Christianity, within the church, that will disagree with me on that statement theologically. But I am convinced that our participation in God's work is bigger than we realize. So God has a huge part for us to play in the work that he has called us to within his kingdom. And so coming back to Esther, Esther chapter 8, we pick up the story again there at verse 7. It says, Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, Indeed, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows because he tried to lay his hand on the Jews. You yourselves, speaking to Mordecai and Esther, you yourselves write a decree concerning the Jews as you please in the king's name and seal it with the king's signet ring. For whatever is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's signet ring, no one can revoke. So notice that the king did only, he did the things that he could do. He has put to death Haman and he has given all of Haman's household, the entire state, into the hands of Esther. So the king did and said, effectively he says to them, I did what no one else could do. And I've given you the authority and the power to do the rest. Now, Jesus in the New Testament, on the cross, he did what only he could do. Only Jesus could die in our place for our sins. Only Jesus, because he is fully God and fully man, could take the sin of all people upon himself and be crucified. Jesus did what only he could do. And when it was accomplished, he said, it is finished. But then he says to us, his followers, at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 28, what we call the Great Commission, Jesus came and spoke to his disciples and said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and in earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. So, Jesus did on the cross what only Jesus could do. And he has all authority in his power. And he gives that authority to you and to me. And he says, I want you to take that authority and go and do the work that I've called you to. So the king in our story in Esther gave Esther and Mordecai his signet ring, the seal that granted them all authority. And Jesus has given to you his power and his presence by his Holy Spirit. And he has dispatched you and me to his work. So we have work to do. And we continue reading back here in Esther chapter 8, verse 9. There we read, So the king's scribes were called at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded to the Jews, the satraps, the governors, and the princes, and the provinces of, from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces in all, to every province in his own script, to every people in their own language, and to the Jews in their own script and language. And he wrote in the name of the king, King Ahasuerus, sealed it with the king's signet ring, and sent letters by couriers on horseback, riding on royal horses bred from swift steeds. By these letters, the king permitted the Jews who were in every city to gather together to protect their lives, to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the forces of any people or province that would assault them, both little children and women, and to plunder their possessions. 
on one day in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province and published for all people so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers who rode on the royal horses went out, hastened and pressed on by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Shushan, the citadel. Consistently in the scriptures, we see that God will save his people from evil and destruction. This is the God that we worship. This is the God that we serve. So Mordecai, verse 15, went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel of blue and white with a great crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple. And the city of Shushan rejoiced and was glad. The previous decree that had gone out back in chapter three, it, it brought confusion. The whole city was perplexed when they received word that all of the Jewish people were to be destroyed in the month of Adar. But now the city gets another decree and it's to counteract the decree that had come from Haman. And now the city is not perplexed, but the city rejoices and is filled with gladness. And this is the same thing that the gospel brings wherever it goes. The gospel brings order out of chaos and confusion. It brings joy from sadness. It brings light from darkness. And so we continue reading on there in verse 16. The Jews had light and gladness, joy and honor in every province and city wherever the king's command and decree came. The Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a holiday. And then, note this, then many of the people of the land became Jews because fear of the Jews fell upon them. Such a great story. And it teaches us important lessons about God's work and our work. It challenges us to trust God and not only to trust God for his working, but to also engage in the work with him. So as we wrap up our study here in Esther chapter 8 today, I want to offer one final point for us to consider as it relates to God's work and ours. And it's this. This is really, really important. Because how do we take what we see happening in the book of Esther, where God is working behind the scenes, but he calls his people to be involved in that work. How do we apply that to our lives living at this moment, trusting that for such a time as this, you live in this place at this time, and you work in the job that you work in, or go to the school that you go to, or live in the neighborhood that you are a part of. You are in all these places that you are in for such a time as this. So how can you Step into the work that God has for you, recognizing that he's working in the midst of it as well. Well, here's the point. Something for you to think about. I hope you will think about this this week. Jesus died to bring salvation to the world. If you're a Christian, you know that that is true. Jesus died to bring salvation to the world. And God desires that you would live to do the same. He desires that we would be engaged in that same work. Jesus did what only he could do. He died on the cross. He said, it is finished. But now he calls us to live and to carry that word into the rest of the world. All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I have commanded you. Lo, I am with you always. Mark chapter 16 says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Luke chapter 24, beginning at verse 46, 47, says this gospel, this good news, of the king's decree, this good news is to be declared in all nations, beginning at Jerusalem, beginning where you live, carried to all people. And in the same way that the father sent Jesus to come to this world to accomplish his work, Jesus sends you and I to go into the world and he empowers us for this work. So we can trust that God is at work and he's doing the things that only he can do, but he calls you and I to step into the work as, as well. So I wanna challenge you with this. 
What is it that God has set before you that he is calling you to be a part of today? What is the purpose for which God has made you? Jesus died to bring salvation to the world and God desires that we would live to do the same. Father God, I pray for this church. I pray for Cross Connection Church and the larger body of Christ. Not just this church because there's people who watch these messages and engage with these weekly that don't necessarily live here in San Diego and don't necessarily come here on a Sunday morning. God, I pray that you would help us to recognize that you have saved us for a purpose and you did the work that only you could do and you call us to step into the remainder of that work. And, and we can trust that you will finish the work that you started, being confident of this very thing, that you will finish it all and complete it. But you want us to do something. There's a neighbor you want us to reach out to. There's a coworker you want us to share the gospel with. There's a family member you want us to pray for. There's a person who sits in the same classroom that we're in that you want us to speak to and give counsel to. Lord, there are things you call us to, to do today. And I pray, God, that for such a time as this, we would rise into that work to be a light to those who are in darkness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>